Now a reading from Genesis 2, 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all of his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Deuteronomy 5, 12 through 15. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. We rise for the reading of the gospel. From Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word spoken by the Lord Jesus. Thanks to you, Lord Christ. Now, oh yeah. Over the years, I'm guessing that you, many of us have done some variation of this particular exercise. You know, if, you've, if you were stranded on an island, you know that exercise? If you were stranded on an island, what would be the top five survival items that you would bring along? Or maybe one of those things would be, if you were the, survive, uh, stranded on an island, what's the one extraneous, completely unnecessary thing that you would want to bring from home for comfort? Hmm, good question, right? Now, I'll ask you one more variation for today. If you were stranded on an island and you could only pick one spiritual practice to do indefinitely, which one would you pick? What's the one spiritual practice that you would use to nurture your relationship with God? It's a tough call, right? Raise your hands if it's prayer. Okay, scripture reading? You, don't have, you, can, you can leave your hand up for, I know you only have to get to pick one. Musical worship, a hymn book, a liturgy book. Oh, I know, communion. What about fasting, since you're going to be starving anyways? I'll bet that most of us would not think of the practice of Sabbath to make that list. I don't think I would even consider it as one of those practices. But consider this, what spiritual practices are listed on the Ten Commandments? Church attendance, prayer, singing, liturgy, Bible reading? No, it's Sabbath. It's the only practice on the Ten Commandments. It's also the longest and most detailed of all the commandments, 
as we heard last week. We found out that Sabbath isn't just a suggestion, but it's a commandment from the Lord for God's people. So the question is, what's the big deal about Sabbath? Sabbath seems to be this keystone practice that informs all the other practices in our lives. Sabbath helps us stop. Sabbath helps us rest and delight and worship God. Last week, we learned about how Sabbath invites us to stop. And today, we're going to learn about Sabbath's invitation to rest. Sabbath's invitation to find true rest in God. Rest from restless desire. Rest as liberation. And rest as resistance. Rest from restless desire, rest as liberation, and rest as resistance. You know, desire is this engine of our lives. And so our spirits are so too with our spiritual journey with God. It's fueled by desire. And maybe many of us may come to God initially with a desire for comfort, or a desire for healing, or a desire for relationships and love. But along that way, as we get to know God, we discover that our desires are actually for Jesus and to follow Jesus. Our desires lead us, we discover, to be a place of being transformed into a new kind of person. Those are what our desires are pointing us towards. But here's the thing. If we pay close attention to our inner lives, we realize that desire is never satisfied. The writer of Ecclesiastes in 1 verse 8 says this, Is there anything? Oh, wait, wrong. Okay. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. It's never enough. A more recent philosopher also put it this way. I can't get no satisfaction. No matter how much we get, it's never enough. Medieval philosopher and theologian Thomas Aquinas said, once asked this question, what would it take to satisfy human desire? And the answer he came up with was, we would have to experience everything and everyone and be experienced by everything and by everyone in order to feel truly satisfied in life. We can never get enough. We all live with chronically unsatisfied desires. And biblical writers describe this inner disquiet as restlessness. It's an ancient problem that goes all the way back to the early church fathers. And Augustine, one of those church fathers, uh, is often quoted saying this. Our heart is, oh Lord, our heart is restless until it rests in you. From the beginning of the Christian faith, It's been named. But in the West, you know, and especially in America, we have tried to commodify this restlessness. The whole marketing industry exists to monetize your restlessness. Marketing is designed to create desire. Desire for a vacation that you didn't know you needed, or a coffee, or a spa experience, or for a food experience. It's to create desire for sports that you're missing out on, or experiences you're missing out on, or drugs to alleviate your pain. Marketing tries to convert your restlessness into dollars spent that goes into somebody's pockets. 
So we're chasing more and more things. We're chasing more and more square footage for our houses. We're chasing more stamps to go in our passport, more relationships, and more sex. But it's never enough. What the world offers is not meant to address the source of your restlessness. So true rest seems to be out of reach, always. In the East, they call this the wheel of suffering. Now, it's not a form of punishment, and it's not just a religious statement. This wheel of suffering is characterized by two experiences. One is craving, and the other is aversion. Craving is chasing after what you desire, and aversion is running away from what you want to avoid, what you're afraid of, and, uh, or what you don't want in your life, or the pain that you're, you don't want to experience. Chasing and aversion. And the suffering of these two desires is the moment we catch what we're chasing or the moment we get away from what we're running from, we find ourselves wanting more things. It's never enough. So how do we get off this hamster wheel of restlessness? Biblical language describes it as a fight against the cancer of restlessness of our human hearts. The answer the Bible provides is Sabbath. Sabbath is how we wage war against cancerous restlessness and we take this easy yoke of Jesus and find rest for our souls as we've been singing this morning. You know, in the Genesis of creation account that Ryan just read for us, we find that God rested on the seventh day after creating the entire heavens and the earth. The word that is translated into rest here in the English translation comes from the Hebrew word Shabbat, which we translate into as Sabbath. So, but often when we think rest, we read this, oh, rest, God rested. We think God just chilled out. He relaxed. He took a day off. He slept in. Have a chill day. That's what we think when we think rest, right? I think most of us do. But behind Shabbat is a more holistic view of rest. Jesus called it, as in the Matthew uh, text, rest for your souls. Rest for this inner longing. Rest for this uh, disquietness and restlessness. And on Sabbath, we are invited to rest from work, all work, not just your paid work, not just jobs, but all work, including your chores, your errands, and your to-do lists. That's the invitation of Sabbath. In his helpful book on the Sabbath, Rabbi Joshua, uh, written for Jewish, uh, Jewish, uh, our Jewish friends, where's my quotes? Oh, here it is. He said this. The Sabbath says we rest not just from work, but from even thinking about work. Not just resting from doing your work, but thinking about your work. Why is that? You know, neuroscientists tell us that when we think about work, even when we're at home resting, it secretes the same chemicals in our brains as if we were working at our office. So compound that with the now ubiquitous remote work from home where you can be working in your bedroom, at your dining table, in your living room, in the rec room, and you have a recipe for non-stop work. You have your laptop that you do your work on, your reading for work, your files that you use for work, and your documents. They're all sitting in the same place where you're eating, living, sleeping, playing with your children. Sabbath is not just resting from work or thinking about work, though. There's even more. It's about resting from wanting and worrying. Sabbath is resting from those things that cause you anxiety, 
Sabbath is resting from that wheel of suffering, of craving and aversion. Resting from this desire to find happiness in something that we hope to get from whatever income level or title. Resting from our avoidance of a relationship or a situation. Sabbath offers us a true freedom from restless desire. So the Ten Commandments are repeated twice in Scripture. In Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, as Ryan read for us this morning. And Deuteronomy, the word Deuteronomy literally means the second law or second word. Why is it repeated? It's because it's a repetition of the law given to Moses that's recorded in Exodus that we looked at last week. And when they first left Egypt, Deuteronomy, though, happens on the other side, uh, on the edge of the Jordan, as they're about to enter into the promised land. And those two texts are separated by 40 years of wandering in the desert. The second word is given to a generation who didn't hear the giving of the law to the Moses and the Israelites right after they were set free from Egyptian captivity. So when we compare the two accounts in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, we'll find that most of it is the same. I've highlighted the, yeah, the, 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 the differences here. There's two notable differences that we're going to talk about. One, the first is a word change in the very first verse. In Exodus, it's remember the Sabbath, whereas in Deuteronomy, it's observe the Sabbath. There are two different words in Hebrew. Zakar, where we get the name Zachary, um, is, is, the, is the remember. And then shamar is observe or preserve and keep watch. We observe Sabbath like we observe a holiday like MLK or Indigenous People's Day or Christmas and Easter or the 4th of July. We remember and we set those days apart. 4th of July has fireworks. Christmas has a Christmas tree. Easter has Lent and the cross. And we set those days apart as different from the rest of the year. And so Sabbath is meant to be the same. If we set it apart to keep it a weekly holiday, or to guard it, to keep watch over it, and to observe it, lest it become just another day of the week. Our Jewish friends have created liturgies to go along with Sabbath that helps them not only remember, but to observe the significance of Sabbath. They often begin the Sabbath with what is known as a Kaddush, which is a prayer of blessing to begin and to end the Sabbath. I had an opportunity to sit with a Jewish family when I visited Israel on their, past, you know, on their Sabbath day. And, and the, the father would speak a blessing, pray a blessing over each of the children at dinner time as part of their Sabbath practice. They will also light two candles on Sabbath. One, uh, two, the two candles allude to these two commandments. Remember the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath. So that's the first difference. Observe versus remember. The second difference we see comes in the rationale towards that last part. In Exodus, we're told Sabbath is grounded in the story of creation. Saying four in six days. You rest because God rested. But in Deuteronomy, it's grounded in the story of liberation. Saying you were slaves. You were. You were past tense. You were once slaves, but now you're no longer slaves. So live and observe the Sabbath. At Sinai, Sabbath is described in Exodus as this rhythm. 
It's a rhythm of spiritual, emotional, and relational health that is built into creation. And when they were set free from Egyptian captivity, they needed a new rhythm, a new relationship to their work, a new relationship to their rest, and a new relationship to time itself, as we learned last Sunday. So that was the Exodus, 40 years before. But in Deuteronomy, there's this entire generation that stood at the edge of the promised land, the land that God had promised and was full of milk and honey, and their land of their own. But they needed a different rationale for Sabbath. They needed a new relationship for work and rest. Sabbath was to remind them of their liberation from captivity, a liberation from this previous way of life. But Sabbath is also a resistance to the way of life that they may be tempted by as they enter into the promised land. So, last session, we looked at stop, Sabbath as stop. Stop is a rhythm. And this session is about rest. Rest as resistance. The question is, is what are we resisting? Resisting our partners tell, asking us to do stuff? It's like, oh no, it's my Sabbath day. Don't ask me to do that. No. In the Exodus story, we hear this language describing restlessness. In Exodus 5, this is before they're set free, Moses goes to Pharaoh to have a conversation with him about letting them go to the desert to worship and to offer sacrifice. But Pharaoh says, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? That's verse 4. Verse 9, make the work harder for the people so that they can keep working and pay no attention to lies. Verse 17, Pharaoh said, lazy, that's what you are, lazy. That's why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. See, Pharaoh was this cruel tyrant over the enslaved Hebrew people. No matter how hard they worked, it was never enough. And when the Hebrews did their work and found some space and margin for worship and rest, Pharaoh said, here's more. You, you don't have enough work. That's why you're asking for this stuff that you're not paid to do. But it wasn't just Pharaoh as an individual. It was an entire socioeconomic system of Egypt as a whole. The Hebrew people made bricks to build Pharaoh's supply cities. Think of it. Pharaoh was building entire cities to store all of his stuff. All of Pharaoh's grand accomplishments, the things that tourists go and flock towards to look at, they came on the back. That exists because it was built on the backs of slaves. In order for him and Egypt to live a lavish and opulent lifestyle, Pharaoh and Egypt had to have slave labor to do the work so that they could rest and enjoy it. You see, slaves don't get Sabbath. They are considered subhuman. They aren't considered equals. They are a commodity to buy and to sell, to use and to dispose of. And they work every day, all day, until they die. And you find someone else. But you think that's just an Egyptian problem, Egypt problem? Think of all these remains of great ancient civilizations and all of us want to go and visit them. India, Rome, Greece, South America. You think the ruling class built all those things with their labor? Of course not. Slaves did it. But it's not just back then. That restless drive is not, happens in our own backyard. Where does all of our produce and livestock come from? Who's working in the fields so that we can have fresh fruit, 
fresh meat all day long, 24 hours a day, every, any season of the year. Who's working those fields so that you and I can eat? It's probably not Bobby and Alice that you grew up going to school with and hanging out in the playground with, right? And who you played baseball with. 73% of agricultural workers are immigrants. Many of them are undocumented. They work for the food that you and I eat. Restless drive shows up in other things that America takes for granted as well. You know, we believe that every good idea and every good product must be monetized, marketed, multiplied, scaled up, and reproduced. We think that frenetic drive to increase salaries and job titles and market share and investments is the definition of success in a flourishing life. That drive and desire, though, can just be as much about restlessness and discontent. But the way of Jesus suggests, suggested in the Sabbath says something different about that. In the literary design of the Bible, Egypt is an archetype, much like Babylon later on in Scripture. Egypt and Babylon are real historical empires, but they are also symbolic of empire down through time. Think of this. What's on the back of the American $1 bill? There's a pyramid there, a symbol of empire. There's 13 levels on the bottom, symbolizing, you know, representing the 13 original colonies, but there is a blank, an empty space there to symbolize, you know what, America's not done yet. There's more, more to be had. It's built into our culture and our national story. All those electronics and shoes and clothing and coffee and stuff that we think we need in order to be happy and successful comes from billions of people who work for pennies on the dollar. We work for more. We have more. We eat more. We shop more. We travel more. We influence more on social media. But all this is because of an unchecked desire for more, more, more. But where does that lead us? Conservative estimates say that we now spend two to ten times more on goods and services than our uh, previous generations in the 1940s and 50s. Our homes are three times larger than then and filled with two times as much stuff. You know, in Egypt, Pharaoh had slaves build entire cities to store all of his stuff. What do Americans do? We build self-storage facilities. There's 2.3 billion square feet of self-storage units to store all of our extra stuff. And some of us give away our extra stuff, and then some of us go back to the thrift stores to buy that extra stuff that no one else wants. More, more, more. Despite all this more, are we any more happier? Sociologists tell us that happiness in the West, levels of happiness peaked in the 1950s and have been in steady decline since then. In North America, that is about the time that blue laws or laws governing uh, prohibiting work on Sunday, and Sa and, which is also known as Sabbath, began to be phased out. I'm just old enough. I'm not born in the 50s or 60s, but I'm old enough to remember the times when the local mall opened up on Sundays and stores began, most stores began to open up on Sundays, and that changed everything. Sabbath quickly became secularized in what we now call the weekend. But rest is what you get from when, when you are set free by God. For the Hebrews wandering in the desert, it is rest from Pharaoh, the slave driver, and Egypt. 
Pharaoh in Egypt may be no more, but the temptation to live under Pharaoh's drive continues in our day. In the biblical story, rest is what Jesus offers. But rest from our work, uh, not just rest from doing, ever doing work, it's but rest from work as the determiner of our value and success. Rest from the work of pleasing God through our moral performance. Rest from the captivity of selfishness and destructive desires that are always going on inside each of our hearts. Rest for this incessant drive for more, more, more. Rest as the resistance is saying, enough. It's enough, God. And on Sabbath, we stop and we rest and say, as the psalmist says, I lack nothing. Do we believe that? Do we live like we believe that? Sabbath is a day to rest and say, I have enough, God. And not only that, Sabbath is a day to enjoy what I already have, especially what I have in God. So here's a challenge for all of us, and especially those of us who are contrarians and individualists amongst us. If you really want to be countercultural, if you really want to fight the power of oppression symbolized by Egypt and empire and colonizers, take a Sabbath. Take a Sabbath. If you really want to be countercultural, take one day of a week and stick it to the man <laughs> by not giving in to restlessness and relentless lust for more, more, more. On Sabbath, don't buy. Don't shop, don't sell, don't even shop on the web. Just drink deeply from the well of ordinary life. Share a meal with family and friends. Take a walk outdoors. Take a nap. Slow down and enjoy life with God. Play with your children, play with your grandchildren, play with somebody else's children with their permission. Sit at the window and notice the birds and the flowers and the trees. Revel at how God provides for them. Slow down. And in this beautiful fall season, notice the colors of the fall foliage in the changing seasons. But even more, pause and think that how even the trees have their own rhythm of growth and multiplication, but also of dormancy and rest. It's built into creation. Sabbath is this invitation, it's a command from the living God, but it's a command that's a gift to humanity. Sabbath is this quiet gift that screams loudly in its quietness and restfulness. Sabbath is this quiet gift that screams loudly in its quietness and restfulness. Sabbath is a gift that says stop and rest. Rest from striving. Rest from restlessness. And use this Sabbath day as a countercultural resistance to this incessant drive for more, 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 more. And say, God, it's enough. Canadian Catholic theologian uh, Ronald Rollheiser wisely writes, saying this, True restfulness is a form of awareness, a way of being in life. It is living ordinary life with a sense of ease, gratitude, appreciation, peace, and prayer. 
We are restful when ordinary life is enough. May Sabbath be so for you this day and the days to come. To end this uh, time, I just invite us to sing this simple chorus I introduced to you last week. Now, for those of you who didn't hear it, it's a chorus written from God's voice inviting us to be still. So, take it away. You can sing it or just listen. Be still and know that I am God. Let me come and do all I want to do. Let go, be weak, give in, give up, and I will do something new. Rejoice in my presence, relax in my love, lay aside your agenda and receive from above. Quiet yourself and remain here a while and I will do something new. May we hear this invitation well and live in response, O oh God. Amen.